Over the last few Sundays together, we have been steadily working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Today, we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. By way of introduction, the Apostle Paul had visited the city of Thessalonica several months earlier. He stayed there, and New Testament scholars can't be definitive upon this, but somewhere, at least in my mind, I fall somewhere about six and a half to eight weeks And at the end of that time, the impact of the gospel was such that not only did it impact and transform individual lives, but also families and a community. And in the midst of this busy, thriving, growing city of Thessalonica, the gospel was at work. And it upset a number of people. And it upset them so badly, they made a false claim against the apostle Paul. And they said, Paul is proclaiming Jesus as king not Caesar. And back in the year 89, excuse me, back in the year AD 49 through 50, a charge of treason was enough for you to face capital punishment. And so Paul and Timothy and Silas had to flee for their lives, left the city of Thessalonica, came south to Athens, then over to Corinth. They spent some time in Athens before moving to Corinth. But here is Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica from his now home in Corinth saying, we have longed to hear news of you. And so that gives us the contextual backdrop for chapter 3. And so he writes at verse 1, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. And we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and their efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Paul, in writing to the church at Thessalonica, is saying to them, I have been thinking about you day after day after day. 
I was so sorry we had to flee for persecution. You have been much on my mind. I have been praying for you. I'm eager to hear how you're doing. I know you are existing in the midst of this busy, dynamic, thriving city, a city that's on the Ignatian Way, a city that has thousands upon tens of thousands of people traveling through each day as it's the major trade route to the east. It is also a major port. It is a busy city. And right there at the center of Thessalonica, a young church was birthed through the gospel. And they're beginning to put down their spiritual roots. They're beginning to grow in their faith But since Paul had to leave, he wants to hear about them. He wants to know what's happened to them. He wants to know, are they growing in their faith? Are they men and women of prayer? Is worship part and parcel of who they are? Are they developing and growing in intimacy with Christ? All of these questions are running through his mind. And while he was in Athens, he was thinking about it. As he moved to Corinth, he's thinking about it. But while he was in Athens, he says, literally, we could stand it no more. And they sent Timothy north to Thessalonica to find out how they were doing. And when Timothy comes back and gives a good report, Paul gets very excited. Now go back a couple of verses to the end of chapter 2, verse 17 as this section of the letter covers the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Paul writes, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of intense longing, we made every effort to see you. You wanted to, we, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Now let me pause there for a second. In chapter 2, Paul talks about, or uses a simile rather, of the love of a mother, the care of a father for their children and their family. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is opening up the intensity of his feelings. He is showing to them his pastoral heart. He has great affection and affinity for them, and he wants to know how they are doing. And you see the point he's making. I've been thinking about you, praying for you. I wanted to get to you, but Satan stopped us. Now, that phrase, Satan stopped us, is not a phrase you come across that regularly in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Earlier, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, you find the Apostle Paul still, uh, what's the best way to put it? He would be in Asia Minor, Turkey, and he's decided to go north. And in Acts 16, the Holy Spirit stops him, not once, but twice. And it takes Paul a couple of days to understand that here was God closing the door and saying, Paul, I don't want you to go to Asia Minor, northern Turkey, as we would know it today, I need you to go over to Europe, to Macedonia. In Acts 16, the early verses of chapter 17, that's exactly what happens. And in Acts 17, the first nine verses, he's in Thessalonica. So Paul knows what it means for God to say, no, I don't want you heading in that direction. This is where I need you. And here he's eager to get back to Thessalonica and Satan stopped him. Now we need to be very careful here. 
Sometimes it's our own selfish desires. Sometimes poor choices. Sometimes the decisions we make. God intervenes and closes a door and says, no, that will not be good for you. This is where I want you. And he takes you in another direction entirely. And it may be you have been praying for and seeking promotion at work. You have done all of your homework longing that God would allow you promotion. And he doesn't. And sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to in order to protect us. Sometimes he closes that door. Here, however, it is not the hand of God at work. It is Satan at work. And when you think about Satan, let me give you three points that's helpful to tuck away in the back of your mind. And the first is this. There is absolutely no question that he is powerful. Not only is he powerful, he's a past master at making sin, which is always devastating, traumatic, and toxic, He's a past master of making it look exciting, appealing, enticing. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's saying it. It's not a big deal. You're just stuck in some antiquated faith of some kind. Come on. He delights to do that. But although he is powerful, he is not absolutely powerful. And so even though it said Satan stopped us, please don't give him more credit than he deserves. I'm not sure that's the best phrase, but I can't think of another one to use. And Paul goes on, verse 19, for what is our hope, what is our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Now, can you imagine this young church at Thessalonica reading this for the first time on a parchment scroll that Paul has sent to them? Wouldn't their hearts and minds soar with thanksgiving? We are the joy and the crown of the Apostle Paul. What Paul was saying is this. People matter. Hearts and minds and souls matter. And to watch the gospel impact them and transform them and give them intimacy with the living God. These are eternal issues and they matter. No wonder, he says, you are our joy in crowd. It is the fulfillment of our life's ministry to watch you growing in your faith. All of that is wrapped up in these words. As he takes us into chapter 3, what does he say? He talks about sending Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel. And he said, for one reason, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Paul is saying, I understand you have been facing persecution, probably physical, but also social In other words, once they began to share their faith, people would hold them at arm's length and say, wait a minute, I'm not so sure about this. And so discrimination and persecution, they were experiencing it right there. And then as you read on further in chapter 5, what else do we see? For this reason, when we could stand it no longer, we sent to find out about your faith. And then he adds, I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. 
And let me explain what he's saying there. And this is only in my overactive imagination, so please be patient with me. I imagine Satan in all of his subtle ways getting alongside this new congregation, getting alongside these folks and kind of gently whispering in their ear. Now, I hear you talking about faith in Christ. Do you really understand what you're getting into? Do you remember that guy, what was it? Oh, Paul. Remember he was here for a couple of months then there was a riot and he had to leave. Tell me again why you're following him because quite frankly, the first sign of danger, he left. (laughs) Is that a model for perseverance? Really? He just got up and left. You think he cares for you? Come on. And incidentally, this whole faith thing I wouldn't pay it too much attention. It's a kind of fad. It's a phase you'll go through. It'll be fine. Can you imagine Satan doing just that to young, fledgling Christians wanting to grow in their faith, wanting to know Christ in that richer, deeper way? And here is Satan sowing seeds of doubt. Now, Satan doesn't tell him that Paul has been longing to get there and he stopped him getting there. Doesn't mention that. Doesn't bring that up. Doesn't put that under the spotlight. Far too clever for that. Duplicitous? Absolutely. Is he fraudulent, treacherous, insidious? Utterly. And whenever someone begins to grow in their faith and move to the next level, you will struggle with temptation. Satan would do anything to keep you away from developing and growing in your faith. And Paul's aware of that, and that's why he's longed to see them. And that's why he sent Timothy, that he might strengthen you and encourage you in your faith so that no one will be unsettled by these trials. That's what's happening right here. And then further down at verse 5, what does he say? I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you. That's exactly what he's doing. But please understand this. That God in his sovereign love and grace will never abandon you to the temptation of sin. He'll never walk away in the midst of the emotion of the moment. He won't. When he looks at us, he sees the parents and the grandparents who are praying and grieving over their 16-year-old member of the family, a young man filled with anger and rebellion. He sees that and knows that. He knows the bitter and cynical executive who was unexpectedly discharged recently and who can only say, if God loved me as much as people tell me, why on earth would he allow this to happen? He sees it. He knows it. He watches it. He encounters the hearts hourly that are filled with anxiety, 
calloused with a harshness that's birthed amid despondency and desperation. He knows that. He understands and sees the addict's defeat. He sees the adulterer's secret. He's right there when we are traumatized by an untimely and unexpected death in the family. When you're facing an illness hard to diagnose, he's right there. And please understand this. As Paul is writing to the folks at Thessalonica, he's saying not only does God understand all of this, but please grasp the enormity of this, that his life is caught up in yours. They cannot be separated. He can never walk away from you. He'll never turn his back on you. You are his. So when you're tempted to give up, when you're tempted to drift, understand he has you. He will never let you go, never abandon you. His purpose and will is congruent with your life and faith. Now here's my question. If you were writing to the church in Thessalonica, how would you conclude this section? We're thinking of you. I think that would be on your list. We're praying for you. I think that would also be on your list. We are praying that God would strengthen you in heart and mind and soul and encourage you and equip you to live out your faith day by day by day. Absolutely. All of that. But notice what else Paul says. He says, may he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy. Why holy? Here is this young growing church in the midst of this busy, vibrant city. Why does Paul introduce holiness? We looked at it a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2 when he mentioned it there. And if you were here, no doubt you remember what we said. We said that God in his transcendent majesty, his unsurpassed glory and wonder, God in his holiness, although we say it, although we recognize that he is holy, if you're anything like me, let me reiterate what we said a couple of weeks ago. It leaves me seriously uncomfortable. And it leaves me seriously uncomfortable as it did Isaiah in chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, you have one of the greatest, and let me say that again, and I'm careful in using this language, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible is Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah the prophet finds himself in the throne room of God. And Isaiah says this, it was as if the whole earth heaved under my feet and everything around me shook when I experienced him as holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in his transcendent glory and majesty, God pure in spirit and in his unvarnished, 
unsurpassed wonder and love. And that makes us feel a little uncomfortable. Why? Because he is all these things and a great deal more. And we are not. That's why it makes us uncomfortable. There is no shortcut to holiness. There is no magic formula that tomorrow morning you will wake up holy. Holiness is a lifelong pursuit of the Christian as God in his sanctifying grace shapes and fashions us and refines us and whispers to our soul, it is I. Follow me. Cling to me passionately chase after me because when you do and you are willing to give up the toxicity of sin and all that goes with it, then, then you're ready to begin down the path of holiness. And that is why Paul stressed it in chapter 2 and again here in chapter 3 because he wanted this young, vibrant church at Thessalonica to understand the immensity and the wonder and the glory of holy living. That's why he's highlighting it. And please understand that holiness comes from intentionality. Donald Carson in his spectacular book written in the late 90s called The Love of God writes this. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from a grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indisciplines of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. It's no wonder in the first century Paul called for holiness in our lifestyle. And here in the 21st century we can hear him calling again because please hear me on this. You can have purple hair if you like. You can have a wonderful smile. You can be the best pastor ever. But unless you are seeking after with a red hot passion the holiness of God we are missing out on so much. Let me ask you this week to take time aside and to begin to pray, Father, where are the areas in my life that are less than holy? Show me, please, my motivations, my desires, my longings, the things in my life that need to change in order that I might be holy.
It will be costly. It will necessitate sacrifice. But it is always, always, always worth the effort. Because when you experience him in all of his holiness, when you are lost in wonder and worship and love and praise, that's where commitment is birthed. That's where apathy and indifference are lost. It is in him and him alone. And may God in his grace enable us to become a people searching after holiness. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. Thank you that it speaks to us and it speaks to our needs and it speaks to who we are. And yet, Father, you equip us by the indwelling of your Spirit. Enable us, please, to be men and women of God. Men and women seeking after holiness to be done and to give up the baubles and trinkets of this life and to be sold out for you in every aspect of our being. Father, hear our prayers we ask. In Jesus' name we pray.